The Permission to Succeed podcast is brought to you by Thompson IM Funds, Inc. For more information about Thompson IM Funds, please visit thompsonim.com. Thompson IM Funds, smart investing starts here. Hello, and welcome to the Permission to Succeed podcast. This is your host, Doug Heikinen. The Permission to Succeed podcast is about learning from and being inspired by people who found that point in their lives to throw all caution aside and just go for it. The genesis of this podcast is based on the great appreciation for the lives of Muhammad Ali and Dr. Martin Luther King and their world-changing impact and entrepreneurs as they were themselves. The Permission to Succeed podcast is brought to you by iris.xyz, the most helpful place for advisors to come to to grow their minds and businesses. Power your advice at iris.xyz. Our guest today is Jeff Sika president and CEO of Circle Squared Alternative Investments. Hi, Jeff. Hi, Doug. How are you? Good. We're live in steamy New York today. Yes. It, it's crazy here today. Uh, we, drove, we got in last night to a thunderstorm, and here we are in sweltering heat. Welcome to the, to the east. <laughs> Welcome to the east. <laughs> so you're, change, you're seeing a, a change in investors out there in your career. How are, how are they changing in your mind? Well, I think the change, especially lately, has been dramatic. I think probably more change in the last five years than I've seen in my entire 25-year career. And I think mostly what we're beginning to see mm. is that the advent of the exchange-traded funds, the index funds, made advisors really look at the way they were picking stocks and the way that they were structuring portfolios in a very different way. And they looked at the old way of doing business, which was to analyze balance sheets from stocks and be very, um, be ver be very focused on, on, on details of understanding individual stocks, whereas as opposed to now, where there's a big drive towards indexes and stock picking is a th it seems to be a little less prevalent today. Pro well, it's significantly less prevalent today. And it's forced advisors out of their comfort zone where they can't, you know, there were a lot of advisors that love to look at balance sheets, love, love to look at price earnings ratios. Now they have to consider, they have to get more creative and in a lot of ways more entrepreneurial. So are you seeing investors wanting to push away from more of the, the passive 10 years and, and become more active in their, in their investments? I, I'm not saying – there's inertia. You find inertia in the industry where you find a significant percentage of the people will hold on to the very end. You know, they're like the same people that, that held on to the flip phone, you know, until last year. You have a lot of advisors that are doing that now, and they're doing it because they don't know any other way, and they're afraid to do anything different. So they keep – trying to be the stock pickers and trying to be, you know, and purchase ETFs. When ET exchange-traded funds came, came on the scene, I remember there was this big uh, meeting, and my manager had said that this is going to change everything for the better. And I remember walking out of there and thinking, no, this isn't going to change things for the better. This is going to make us less relevant. And that's really what happened. So you don't see a lot of advisor, you, you see the majority of it, you know, I believe in the Pareto principle that, that you get 20% of the achievement comes from, 80% uh, of the achievement comes from 20% of the participants. 
So you see probably 80% of advisors are clinging to the past. They're not making changes. They're continuing to believe that, that the old model works and it doesn't. And then you have the other 20% that are driving the real creative, you know, incredible um, accomplishments that we're begin beginning to see. And they're beginning to look at how do I make myself valuable to an investor? What could I bring to the table that they couldn't get without me? That's the key. When advisors found out that they could do without, when in investors found out that they could do without the advisor, that they could do it less expensively and get similar types of results, everybody knows the statistic that the average index fund beats a large percentage of managed portfolios. So once they found that out, they began to demand more creative thought. And those 20% of advisors that started to move more towards creative thought are the advisors that are really accomplishing things. And those are the advisors that I try to stay with. So you think that investors, because they're becoming more educated um, with all the information they have out there, are maybe demanding more risk that their advisors take? Yeah, well, I think you take the average person, and I, I've, and, and this isn't going to make me very popular with the, a lot of the that eighty percent of the advisors who are not keeping up with the times. Is that you know people come into my office, and I'll look at their portfolios, and I'll say, you know what, you're paying X fee on it, and I'm not saying that that fee is not worth it, but if you come in here and you tell me you haven't spoken to your advisor in a year and you're paying this fee, my advice to you is to take this portfolio, bring it to a discount firm, and, and manage it for virtually nothing. So you have a lot of the investors that don't really want that. They want, they want an advisor, but they're, they're getting their advisor to start thinking of ways to bring value. So they are willing to take more risk. I don't think risk is necessarily the problem. I think risk, you know, having come from an institutional background, it was very evident that they were very concerned about risk for obvious reasons. They didn't want you know, people to be disgruntled. That just was not a good thing. So they moved away from risk. But what you find in real investors, especially entrepreneurial investors that reach success, you find with these investors that they only got there by taking risk. So they look at you as being, okay, we're not risk averse. You know, we're not coming to you because we're risk averse. As a matter of fact, we've taken many risks. Some of them has, have failed to, to, to bring the results we wanted. Some of them have. And as a result of that, we still want to take more risk. Because obviously, if we're sitting with you, more of our risks have panned out than have not. So they want, they want to be brought to, to higher risk, higher return. They want, to, they want to know what the risks are. That's the key. They want to know if I'm going to invest, you know, like what one of the things we do is we do a lot of real estate, which is a liquid. They really have to know that when you invest with us, liquidity cannot be your major concern. If it is your major concern, you need to go somewhere else. So when you map out exactly what that risk is and they're willing to accept that risk, what you find is that they, they're a lot more at peace with our strategy, and they're not a lot more enthusiastic about moving forward with more strategies in line with what they want to achieve. So do you think the average advisor is an endangered species? I think the average advisor has to start getting their resume out and looking for another line of work. And I know that's kind of a harsh thing to say, but I've been speaking all over the country, and I've been saying that to advisors. 
because those 80% of advisors, you know, that are clinging to the old model are finding that it's becoming because of the where financial technology has has taken our industry, it's becoming very easy for for investors to get exactly what they got from advisor on online. And they used to make fun of the robo advisor. The robo advisor is a very, very, very powerful tool. And there's a lot of advisors that don't realize that this new generation of millenniums coming up, they are not, they are not from, from, we've studied this generation. They are not prone to, to go for advice. They're much more prone to try to get their advice from the internet or from a specific app on the internet. That is going to put a lot of advisors out of business. So you were an advisor until 2014 where you created Circle Squared. So why did you leave and, and tell us a little bit about what you created? It was a it was a process. We had started doing real, real estate back in 2003 and started a family office with my brother. And while I was a managing director at a, at a, at a big institution and um, when I left, I started wealth. I started wealth management, but I, I, I had this entrepreneurial thing about me, and that's why I left a very secure position I was at, and I and I went out and became an entrepreneur. And we started to do wealth management. I found that I was getting very, very. Um, I, 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 I don't know if I would call it burned out, but I was precariously close to being burned out. And you know, I found that you had the average investors that you deal with were chasing returns so they would come in and you'd have you know the what did the s p 500 how did you do net versus the s p 500 and i got really really tired of that and really what i started to see and this was the this was the tipping point for me i went i i started to see that more and more of the families we started to get more families when i went independent so more family offices more and more of the high ultra high net worth family offices more and more of the entrepreneurs who, who had started their business in their basement and grew it to a multi-billion dollar company, we were bringing stuff to them and I was bringing you know, things from my past, strategies that I had used at my other, in my other position and they would sit there and look at them and their eyes would gloss over. And then they would, you know, if they liked me and they knew I was dedicated, they would, you know, they would move forward with the strategy. Then one day, I just made a decision. I said, you know what, I went into my top client. And my top client had been a guy who started a um, started an industrial company from his garage and grew it to a, they, in their particular industry, they have about 99% of their, their industry for their product around the world. So he grew it. He's, he's, he's one of my true heroes and he grew it to this mega company. And we had him in, you know, invested in all these different strategies. And we were trying, you know, we were trying to go with, we're trying to diversify to the best of our, our ability, but we kept running these, um, correlation reports. And we found that we were not getting correlation on his strategies. So one day I sat with him and I said, you know what, we, we had acted in an advisory capacity with all of, with a few other clients in a consulting capacity. So we weren't holding the assets. We were holding some, but not all. And then I went to him and I said, you know what, I know I don't want you to pay me anymore. And the guy I was with, my junior partner at the time, he was just knocked off his seat. He said, what, what are you doing? I said, I don't want you to pay me. You guys love real estate. 
I'm going to start bringing you real estate deals. And we just started down that path and we made all the right connections and we affiliated ourselves with the top of the top in the real estate in our area. And we started bringing real estate deals. That client now is a significantly bigger client than they ever were by a very wide margin. And, in, and, and from that, we went from having you know, a, a handful of clients to now we have over 250 clients that invest in our direct deals. And it had everything to do with this, you know, the permission to succeed type um, mindset. I looked at the industry and I said, this industry is going nowhere. It's going nowhere. It's get, the banks have taken it over. The institutions have taken it over. They're turning their advisors into, into um, order takers. And I said, we need to get creative. We need to bring things that they can't find, even if we have to search night and day to find them. And that's when I said, you know what? We're, 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 gonna, we're going in a different, different direction. And we created Circle Squared Alternative Investments with that in mind, knowing there's an appetite out there for direct deals that people want to be affiliated. They love alignment of interest. They love to know that, that everybody, including us as sponsors, are in the deal with our own money. So, so we're in it. We're partners. And then I stopped. In 2014, I stopped referring to my clients as clients. And when I say it now, it's just an old habit that comes back. I started referring to them as partners. And even today, there are partners. And that's what makes it so gratifying. Are you finding your partners love something that they can touch and go to an opening and do those things? That's, yeah, the tangibility that they, they could go, you know, we could have a real estate project and, and they could go to it and they could, they could touch it, they could feel it, they could walk through it, they could talk to the contractors. They could, that, that sense of tangibility as opposed to a lot of investments where they've, where our industry has, has led people to believe that intangible is good. And there are a significant amount of people out there that, especially people who invest in real estate or um, individual companies, that believe that tangibility is crucial. And I, you know, I looked at real estate in particular and said, a good percentage of the wealth of this world, especially in the Northeast, is created or preserved through real estate. Yet you have a whole advisory community that tries to convince investors that for you to invest in real estate, you have to buy a ridiculous REIT. And that is, is a pure evidence of an industry that does not know what they're talking about. When in reality, our clients, we had a groundbreaking for this extraordinary hotel that we, uh, not a, uh, a ribbon cutting, Last week, it was a 10-year process, finally got it built. It's spectacular. We had a ribbon cutting, and we're having a big grand opening. I was over the moon happy because my investors were all there. A 30 of the 45 came. They were 30 of the 45 investors came. They were walking through. They were, I had people in tears. They were so happy about how things turned out. <laughs> So happy checking the bed sheets in the in the it's a hotel so in the room and checking the you know looking at the menu of for in the restaurant and what's on in the menu and you know that tangibility is that the, our industry I try to convince people that all they need to own is stuff on a piece of paper you know and try to convince people that if you own a hundred shares of Apple you're a shareholder you're an owner of Apple no you're not Tim Cook doesn't care about you. 
He's he's not. You're not. But if you're an investor in a property and there's only 20 or 30 of you or 10 of you, you know, you're important. And people want to feel important. They want to feel like they're doing something. And in this, in, in real estate, what it's all about with impact investing, which to me is what it's all about, is that everything we're going to do is going to better the community we do it in. And when you get your, your, your partners to buy into that, that we are not going into any project unless we are going to leave a positive footprint on the ecosystem of that area, they get driven by the emotion instead of some, I guess, mild satisfaction they get that their stock portfolio is up. So if I'm an advisor and I have 50 clients, all 50 clients are, are not right for what you're doing, but that advisor has a few clients that may be right for what you're doing, correct? This is where advisors get very frustrated, and this is where we get very frustrated. Because your, your client has got to have the risk tolerance. They got to understand, you know, that things go wrong, things happen. They have to have, you know, an extraordinary vision. They can't be people who are going to say, you know, if your construction project is delayed six months, you know, it's not going to happen. Um, the vast majority of clients out there, you know, they're looking at the 80% of the people are not qualified. They're not, the, you know, that they should be investing in a balanced portfolio. But my, my uh, commentary to them is that it's a balanced portfolio. Make every effort to get yourself to a place where you understand tangible investments. And even if you're not ultra high net worth, you can make investments in intangible, in illiquid investments. As long as you're very careful about your time horizon and when you're going to need your liquidity. So I'm interested in when um, you find a property or a property is presented to you, what are some of the things that make you want to be involved, like this hotel that was opening, and get others and, and market it to others? The first thing I look at is I'm very, very big on, on partnerships. So what I do is I align myself with the very best developers. I am not a developer. I don't claim to be a developer. I align myself with the very best developers who have a vision for particular projects. And what I tell the developers when it comes to selection, I tell them, don't come into my office with a project that you can't fund or that you don't want to put your own money in, or that you passed around to your friends and family and they didn't want to do, and you're bringing it to me because you think I could get you the money. If you bring that project into me, I'm not going to talk to you. But if you bring me your best, bring me the project that you want to do with your money, but maybe you don't have, your, you don't have enough, you want to do with, you want to bring it to me because you want a relationship. So I know that certain developers that have, you know, that have been around 50, 60 years that know a certain de demographic. One of the things about real estate that I, I like is that it's a, it's, you have to be a geographic sharpshooter. If I were to go into, you know, Boise, Idaho and try to buy real estate, I'd probably get my teeth kicked in because I don't know the market. But if I were to gonna go into Boise, Idaho, I would partner with someone in Boise, Idaho that knows the market and that could be trusted and I would partner with them. So on the ground expertise to find the deal. And then once they find the deal, the first question that I ask once they bring me the deal is that, does this better the community? 
does this make this town better? We do a lot of urban infill, and I think there's been very few times that we, we've had any projects that weren't urban infill, but we, I believe that, you know, the hotel, for example, is this extraordinary luxury hotel that was built on this old broken down car lot. You know, that was an eyesore to the town for years and years. And, you know, we build this extraordinary hotel that's going to employ, you know, probably 250 people. It's going to, people are going to have weddings and bar mitzvahs and, and, and parties. And, you know, people are going to go meet their friends there. And it's just going to be a great, I look at how does it improve the neighborhood? How does it improve the town? Then after that, and this is the number three thing, but in a lot of ways, I could have a deal that looks good. I could come from the right place. But if the economics don't make sense, we're just not going to do it. And I hate to say it, but I get a lot of deals. We probably screen somewhere in the neighborhood of, I would say, 20, 30 deals a month. And we take maybe one. So a lot of, we'll get a lot of the deals that everything is great. It's a, it's a beautiful project coming from the right person. But the numbers don't work. We don't work for the developers we work for the investors. They be, they are our partners. So the developers, we're we're nice to them. We part we we cooperate with them, but ultimately we're going to sit on the side of the table with with the investors. And if the economics don't work, we'll walk away from some. We've walked away from some very very great deals. There is one particular deal that is about to be built now. That if we would have built this project and we could have raised the money easily, if we would have built this project, it would have been a very successful project from aesthetics, but the economics did not work. It really was that we're going to build this trophy and everybody gets to drive by it and say, you see that I own that I'm a partner in that, but no one will make money because they were building it at the very, very most, uh, the highest possible cost to build a project like this. So we walked away from the project. There was a whole ego thing, you know, should we do this? But the reality of it was, when we get to grassroots of who we re represent, the economics did not work. Now somebody else gets to build this and take a, bow, take a bow and put it on the cover of every magazine, and I get to say, it could have been mine. But I walked away from it, and my clients, you know, and, and, and what did we replace it with? A self-storage unit, because the town needed it, and it made sense. But nobody's going to put our self-storage unit on the cover of their... Uh, of their of their brochure you know i'm hearing a lot of passion but i'm also hearing that you're having a lot of fun oh yeah, <laughs> oh, yeah. so in 2014 when you started this and you gave yourself permission to be successful well tell us about that process and and why you did it i i was just feeling i was sitting i was sitting in my office and you know we we create these portfolios and you know i i make a joke of this and i actually have Somebody to come back. I, I used to say, I, you know, I'm getting tired of meeting with every dentist in Westchester, <laughs> you know, and going over for and and it was just because I had I did it for so long, you know. I came into the industry at a place where I, I loved it and I loved it for a lot of years, but I I wanted, you know, I wanted the challenge, and I'm a, I'm a deal guy. I mean, the bottom line is, I I look at it like the Navy SEALs how they operate. You know, how they, you know, their, their, their mindset is always go in, get it done, get out. That's the way I look. I, you know, these long lingering things to me, you know, as I got older, I got less and less tolerant of them. And I said, you know, 
I'm a deal guy. I, I want to create these deals and start to use my connections that I've worked so hard to, to accumulate through the years to bring the right types of deals and bring in people, bring people into projects and, and deals that just blow their mind with creativity. And that's what inspires me because when I get to sit with someone, if I was going to sit with you, you know, and I, if I do TV commentary and I'm talking about the stock market or whatever I'm doing, you know, I mean, it's interesting, but if I get to talk about a creative deal that we're partnering with this luminary and, you know, they got this idea and these are the economics, I mean, that charges me up. That gets me out of bed in, more, in the morning. Yeah. Um, does the uncertain economy and the stock market have you nervous about what you're doing? Not at all. I mean, as a matter of fact, I, I look at I look at the type of stuff we're doing. First of all, obviously, you know, you have to make certain adjustments if the economy turns. You know, like for example, in the in the uh, I said this the other day in a, in a in a talk I gave. In real estate, we're just we're just basking in the glory of cheap money. You know, the banks. I'll get an average refinance. We have banks lining up to do our refinance at these exorbitantly low rates. So that is not going to last forever. Money is not going to be cheap forever. And those of us in the industry need to need to adapt and respond. But, you know, the one thing about real estate is I think real estate, if done correctly, is the perfect hedge. You know, for example, uh, there's a big concern, you know, for the millennials the millennials that can't necessarily afford houses because they come out they come out of college with hundreds of thousands of dollars of student debt and they're renting apartments there's certain towns i mean locally here in the northeast that there's a shortage of apartments believe it or not i mean you might see apartments being built on every you know on every corner but there's a shortage of an apartment apartments the economy turns people are much less prone to buy houses and much more prone to rent apartments so we've invested we have 2800 apartments so far we'll have three we'll have 3500 by the end of the year so the reality of it is is that you have to take not only where we are economically but where we're, we're projected to be in the future and you have to be able to make decisions based on not on what the crowd is doing like i said with real estate you know you could have a miserable awful economy but those of us in the real estate industry would give our last nickel to be back in 2009 when everybody was saying 2008, 2009, that the real estate market was never going to come back and it was never going to do well and people were losing their, you know, their, their shirts because they were over leveraged and they were speculating. The reality was there, there were deals back then that are legendary, that today I know people who made billions of dollars because they were not afraid to buy the right assets in 2008, 2009. So for those um, 80% of the advisors who need to get their resumes going and maybe thinking about becoming entrepreneurs, what advice might you have for anybody who's an entrepreneur that wants permission to give them, to make themselves successful? I would say that, you know, and a lot of advisors, you know, there's this thing with advisors today that are in the wirehouses that they're very, con you know, they're very uh, controlled by their supervisory and, and as it should be. But my, my comment to, to those 80% that are continuing to do the same thing is look at how much your business has grown. And, you know, if you're doing things the old way, I would guarantee that your business is not growing at all. 
and look at look at how you could grow your business through through starting to look at different types of investments, starting to look at different types of strategies, and essentially looking at yourself as an entrepreneur and not as a you know, as an employee, if you look at yourself as an employee, you'll never be creative. You'll always just do what you're supposed to do. And, you know, for some people, that's I have a lot of friends in the industry and they're very quite happy doing what they're doing, you know, and that's fine for them. But for the entrepreneurs out there that look at the opportunity to be better and to be involved in better and different strategies, you know, I'll get a lot of slack from people who will come to me and say, well, it's easy for you to say, because you know you were willing to take that risk, I got bills to pay, and I got the reality of it is nothing good is going to happen unless you take the risk. There's never going to be a point where you're going to get successful when you want to keep one foot on first base and then go to second base. You have to either make take the initiative to be different than everybody else, to start using strategies that maybe other people aren't using, and 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 be willing to accept that it may not be smooth in the beginning. I mean, the one thing is that when you invest in illiquid investments, I mean, you're not you're saying goodbye to that money for a very, very long time. And there's a lot of people who are not willing to do that because in the advisory world, because they like to circulate money. You're not circulating money. You're taking on a mindset that, listen, there's going to be somewhat of, a, of an expense to you being in this strategy. It's going to be black and white. But the reality is we hang fire on our returns. And that's, and that's what people want, and, and that those 80% of those people, a lot of them will never go that direction, but the ones who do, the, the, they may be happy in the end. So the ones that do and want to be happy in the end, how can they find you? Well, they could go on my website. They could catch me on LinkedIn, Jeffrey Sika on LinkedIn, and um, I would love to speak to them. Great. Jeffrey Sika, president of Circle Square Alternative Investments, it's been incredible having you today. I was fascinated. So thank you for joining us. For everyone at iris.xyz and the Permission to Succeed podcast team, this is Doug Heikinen. Thanks for joining us. The Permission to Succeed podcast is brought to you by Thompson IM Funds, Inc. For more information about Thompson IM Funds, please visit thompsonim.com. Thompson IM Funds, smart investing starts here.